its top is a continuation of the long ago armies of Mara talk with a few of your questions thrown in. And if you remember, in the last talk I did about Mara, I talked about sense pleasures and dissatisfaction. And then I skipped to sloth and torpor. (laughs) So tonight I'll mostly be talking about hunger and thirst and craving and fear and doubt. And hopefully in a couple of nights I'll finish talking about conceit, the three different kinds of conceit. And by the way, the three different kinds of conceit are deprecation and obstinacy. That's the first kind. The second kind is gains, reverence, and fame. And the third kind is disparaging others or its opposite self-exaltation. So remembering that Mara is our perception which is veiled by the faults. Being in the darkness which is really not being able to see clearly, hence the faults, not being able to see the truth. And as I said before, a weak mind on meeting with an object is likely to trigger greed, hatred, or delusion, which you can see is Mara at play. And these ten aspects of Mara are those different kinds of greed, hatred, and delusion basically at play. And a clear perception, seeing clearly, allows us to live among our senses without being harmed. And that's why it's so important to see clearly because we harm ourselves and others if we don't. And I'd like to begin with an image that's been a favorite of mine in my lifetime, which is seeing the sunlight on the water, especially a stream. Just seeing the play and dance of the sun's rays on the water, it seems like I can just watch that for hours and hours on end. And recently I've begun to see that the sunlight is like mindfulness or awareness. And that this mindfulness purifies whatever water bubble goes by, whatever appears in the field of attention. And therefore it's not what's appearing no matter what army of Mara, no matter what form of greed, hatred, or delusion appears, it's not a problem if we have a clear perception of what it is. A yurik 
holy man says, to see means to see what is actually there, what actually exists, not what you want to be there, but what is really there. It's all seeing. So this talk is mainly about learning what to do when it feels like all you're seeing is these different aspects of Mara at play. And remembering that the first one of sense desire is really just the hankering for pleasant objects. And the second dissatisfaction is a discontent. It's it's being dissatisfied with what we're seeing. It's being dissatisfied with what's happening. And this dissatisfaction often leads to thirsting for good things, such as in this particular circumstance, which is limited what we can really anchor after, uh, special kinds of food, uh, a nice room, a comfortable bed. It's hankering after special kinds of facilities. And the environment here at IMS is actually incredibly luxurious for a meditation center. And I've heard so many horror stories <laughs> of what it's like to sit in many places in Asia. Just the fact that there is some heat, even though it might seem sparse, is a gift. And the food and the health conditions, it's really... um, Upandita kept telling me it was a heaven realm here. (laughs) Believe it or not. So compared with a lot of retreat facilities, it's nice, but you still don't get everything you want. And this not getting what we want brings us to this hunger and thirst. And it's the hunger and thirst for familiar things that we're used to. Nice music. Chinese food, (laughs) different clothes. (laughs) How many of you are sick of your clothes? (laughs) A nice chair, (laughs) whatever. Uh -uh, Some friends of mine that sit here usually put all their clothes in the free box when they leave because they get so sick of the same clothes. So it's a great time, actually, to look for clothes if you want to switch. (laughs) (laughs) Deep contentment and tranquility of mind, rapture and joy, are also very delicious food. And the truth itself is supposedly the most scrumptious food. And so these are known to fill unsatisfied hunger and thirst. 
If hunger and thirst are appearing, it's very, very uncomfortable. And if we don't see them clearly, the mind starts to scheme, which leads to the fourth army of Mara, or craving. And craving, which you probably know what it is already, but it comes from the deprivation of what we like, not getting what our preferences would want us to get. And if there's frequent disappointment in not getting what we want, it usually leads to a search for what we want. And when this is identified with, this is when the fantastic plans to get what you're missing occur, or the great justifications to get what we want occur, all for the sake of practice, of course. And then, usually, we start writing notes. (laughs) And this is all to satisfy this hunger and thirst. And it's craving that motivates the search. Did you ever notice how people approach the notice board? A friend of mine calls TV our greatest drug in this culture, and the notice board always reminds me of a television set. (laughs) Uh You see people sort of (laughs) just craving the stimulation. It's like a magnet pulls you. No matter how much you want to be mindful of each step, it's like the glue just starts (laughs) pulling into the TV. Sri Nisargadatta says that to imagine that some little thing like food or sex or power or fame will make you happy is to deceive yourself. And it's only the truth, seeing clearly a tranquility and peace of mind which will allow us not to get hooked by these conditioned preferences. Very long ago, it seems, I was sitting in this hall for long hours, and there was an incredibly deep contentment, just the deepest contentment I'd ever tasted before. And it was this time of year, and you know how when that contentment is there, sort of toward tea time, and it's getting dark, and there's nothing possible that one could ever seem to want. And the tea bell rang. And even though there was the deepest contentment I'd ever tasted, this wanting appeared, and it was just this like naked craving. It couldn't have been clearer. It was so painful. Uh, And I just sat with it, and at the same time, it was sort of a special time of night, 
with the darkness setting in, and this dog was barking. A dog lived across the street at this time. Uh, and it seemed like this barking was just like that craving. This endless barking is just the wanting. It just the mind bark, 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 bark. It has nothing to do with anything, <laughs> really. I was, I was fine. And often when that kind of raw craving occurs, I just label it barking now. You know, it's just, just treat it as barking. And you don't have to buy into it. It, be, it can become very peaceful because of that not buying into it. There's a song by Bob Dylan that I recently heard that's it's the same, it's amazing, it's the same line over and over throughout this whole song, and it's really high, you know, high uh, electric, really fast, big drums, and all he's saying, <laughs> if you can pay attention, it's hard to catch the word, and he's saying, want to let go, but I can't let go, <laughs> want to let go, just over and over and over. And I wonder if that's familiar. <laughs> want to let go, but I can't let go. Uh, even when we see that desire never works, desire just doesn't work. You've probably seen it backfire hundreds of times by now. And yet, sometimes we just can't let go of that craving, that wanting. And often I've seen that we let go from two places. One is that hot potato that Sharon talked about. It's like, or the hot coal. It's like we hold that wanting and wanting. And even though we know, you know, we're getting first degree burns, second degree burns, third degree burns, we don't let go. And finally, when we're just screaming, we'll let go. And Fortunately, there's another way. Because once you've tasted the sweetness of letting go, that deep contentment, you can also remember what it's like to not be wanting, to not be barking. And so one doesn't always necessarily have to wait until One's just in agony. One can also remember at times that it's the moment we let go. It's, it's almost like when, a, when this little cloud can come and block the sun. And there's this huge sky, but this little cloud comes, and that's the wanting. And yet you know when that little cloud comes, it, it's shady, it's cold, and it blocks the sun. And it was the slightest movement of the cloud, the sun starts appearing, and it's just this little teeny cloud. The more you realize that, the more we realize that, the more we let go. So there's, as one practices over the years, there's that memory as well as the agony. <laughs>
If we don't let go of this wanting, this frantic search for what we want is exhausting. We have all these ingenious plans and schemes. And this leads eventually to the fifth army of Mara, which is sloth and torpor. And you can probably, from experience, know how that happens. It's mentally and physically exhausting to be planning all the time. And either the movement of all the physical actions that we have to take to bring about what we want, or actually the mental involvement that goes about the search of what we want, both of those are exhausting. And this leads to sloth and torpor, which is when the mind is shrunk and withered. It's not fresh or malleable, active or sharp. And since we talked about this before, I just wanted to say, you've all experienced that it's possible to overcome that at times. It's possible to overcome that withered mind. And when when one does, one has a tremendous inspiration for practice and one has a lot of energy. And if we're overcome by sloth and torpor like in a day, over and over again, or over days, this will still happen no matter how long we practice at times, unless you're an arahant. If you're fully enlightened, it won't happen. If we're overcome, often fear arises, the sixth army of Mara. And traditionally, this fear um, was defined in regard to the forest monks and nuns. So it was defined as being afraid of wild beasts or ghosts. And it's also seen in the form of fear of failure or the dread of interviews. or self-pity, or comparison with others, or disappointment. Because of the mind being withered and feeling exhausted, (laughs) then all this self-judgment comes up, or fear of talking with somebody about one's practice, because one feels like nothing's happened. Um, And I was just sent this little napkin by a friend that said on it, The road to success is always under construction. (laughs) Which is important to keep in mind. (laughs) When this fear (laughs) arises. Um, And there's a lot that can be said about fear, and there's a lot that has been said. But keeping in mind that there is always construction going on, on our journey, um, I thought it would be interesting to look at what motivates us to practice. 
And I think it's really important to remember that the motivation changes within five minutes, within an hour, within days. It's like that metaphor I brought up earlier in the retreat about sailing. Sometimes the energy or the wind is with us and we feel great and everything's perfect. And then when the wind isn't with us, when we're low energy, we take that personally and we feel like we're failing and that we'll never make it and we can't do it. We're not good enough. And so often our motivation is very much like the weather in New England where we have a thaw one day and all the animals emerge and then it's freezing cold today and they're all frozen in the ground. Um, Our minds are similar. Our energy goes through tremendous fluctuation. And beyond this daily fluctuation, I think it's interesting to look at that most of us were raised in a school system, most of us, where mostly we were taught to be motivated by the fear of failure. And so it's pretty ingrained in us to be motivated. Say, for example, we were motivated to study because we were afraid we'd get bad grades, or we were afraid we wouldn't get approved of or liked by the teacher or by our parents. And instead of learning about love of learning, about the love, the actual possibility to love to explore. A lot of us have to struggle with that real deep conditioning that somehow we're constantly being judged or compared, whether inside or outside. And it's terrifying to live that way. And as an army Amara, it's impossible to see clearly when, we're, when our energy is coming from this terror of failure, whether being judged from the inside or being judged from the outside. It's debilitating. I taught school for many years and then I switched to teaching children with learning disabilities. And I discovered that I had learning disabilities in the process. (laughs) And one, one of the parts of the job was that I would kind of march into each teacher's classroom and and pick out, you know, one child or several children. And it was wonderful because I just was able to work with one child at a time or a few children at a time. And I walked into this kindergarten one day, and actually it was very interesting because after a half of year, half a year, I would walk into these classrooms and all the kids would raise their hands and say, take me, take me. <laughs> Which showed how exciting 
the class was going. Um, <laughs> it was awful <laughs> to walk in, and the teacher used to hate it when I'd walk in. And it was really interesting because there was this little, this kindergarten, believe it or not, this is kindergarten. Um, I walked in, and the, it was half a year, and this whole new kindergarten class had started. So this little child had only been in there for about two weeks. And I walked in, and no one saw me walk in, and I heard this little girl, Melissa, crying to the teacher, and she kept saying, I hate school. I hate school. I can't stand it here. She was crying, and the teacher just stood up. This is in northern Maine, where they're very tough teachers up there. And she said, that's tough luck, kid. You've got 12 more years of it. <laughs> I don't know if that sounds familiar at all. <laughs> but you can imagine how excited she was to learn. <laughs> And that's been a lot of our experiences here and there. Um, so it's no wonder that we get caught in a struggle about trusting our, our wind or our energy and learning to find our own rhythm in this practice day by day, or to keep trying to fit into some kind of model that we have an idea that we should fit into. Um, and one aspect of this is basically, say we're not able to concentrate someday. We just can't stay with an object. We're just very unfocused. And we talk, a group of mine was talking about this the other day, and one of the people was saying that he saw that sometimes he's incapable of concentrating not unwilling. To, it's not that he's unwilling to concentrate. The willingness is there. But there's just not the ability to... There's not an ability to do it. And it's interesting, that distinction, that sometimes we're just not able to. And we're just not able to accept that. And one of my best teachers for this is actually um, my menstrual period that comes every month. And every month I have a day or two where I absolutely cannot focus. I mean, there's just... <laughs> it's such a good teacher because I have no control. And it's so clear. There's just not one minute or one second where there can be that aim <laughs> and a sticking. <laughs> to the object. It's very diffuse. Um, and it's actually very wonderful space if I accept it. And it took me many years to just go, oh, this is fine. There's a willingness, but there's not the ability. And it's actually a very pleasant place. And it's a time of rest and, and seeing things in a different way. It's more diffuse. And I think that this not being able to control it, none of us are able to control it, 
none of us are able to be concentrated all the time. And because of that, it's important to find your own personal rhythm, finding the space where one is exploring for oneself rather than performing or pleasing others or comparing yourself with others. And I think that it's very hard to learn about responsibility finding one's own center. It's like finding a golden thread to one's inside, trusting one's own rhythm, rather than blaming authority figures or parents or teachers or role models for what's happening. Maturity is taking responsibility for one's own mind state, one's own birth, one's own life and for what it, whatever's appearing. And so sometimes the willingness to see isn't even there. Heaven forbid. I mean, sometimes not only are we not able to see, we're not, we don't want to. We just want to crawl up in the fetal position and pull the covers over our head. And we have to be able to be okay with that too that that's part of the rhythm. And it's not personal. (laughs) We don't have to identify with it, just be with it and keep going as much as you can. Another level of fear is the fear of losing one's identity in this process the identity of oneself or of others. And a good friend of mine stopped by here recently who sat a three-month course quite a while ago, and she was reminiscing about this time in the course. And she said that about this time she began really missing close friends. And so she tried to remember what they looked like, and all she, could, all she could get would be an eye, or a nose, <laughs> or an ear, or some curls or something, or the color of the hair, but she couldn't get a whole face. <laughs> and it terrified her. She just lost it for the rest of the retreat. She just couldn't stand it. So, sometimes, it can almost seem like we're living in a postcard here. (laughs) It can seem very flat and not very real. And you've been away from the so-called real world (laughs) for so long, it's almost like you can't remember what anybody looks like or what's really out there. It's kind of can be, it can bring up this fear. But it all comes back very quickly, so it's not to worry. And I'm moving this along a bit because of the time. Um, 
if we're not able to transcend, which means not identify with these aspects of fear, then the seventh army of Mara comes, which is doubt. And doubt arises because of excessive thinking and trying to reason too much. And this comes from not seeing clearly and the sloth and torpor and the fear. And so this excessive thinking leads to exhaustion in the mind and an indecisiveness, which you've, you've heard a lot about the meaning of doubt. Um, a result of this indecisiveness is this lack of energy. It's the lack of motivation or the lack of commitment. And because of this, the mindfulness slackens and we get more scattered. And there's no medicine occurring, the medicine of mindfulness. And then there's more doubt. And it's important to reflect on what's been happening in your practice before the doubt occurs. Because its, a, it's appearance is often connected with um, boredom or some kind of difficulty or the nothing's happening space. And then when we experience the boredom or whatever, we make an interpretation when nothing is happening, to mean that we're failing and that the practice isn't for me. I should be doing some other kind of practice. Or the teachers are not very good. Or the people practicing here aren't very good. It takes all forms, this doubt, in oneself, in the sangha, or in the teacher. So it's important, this This is something I wanted to talk a lot about. I don't know how much time we'll have. Um, I'll skip this part. Um, There's a quote from Thomas Merton I wanted to read. He says, he defines a marginal person, and we can all include ourselves right now as being marginal people. The marginal person accepts the basic irrelevance of the human condition, an irrelevance which is manifested above all by the fact of death. The marginal person, the monk or nun, the displaced person, the prisoner, all these people live in the presence of death which calls into question the meaning of life. One struggles with the fact of death, trying to seek something deeper than death, because there is something deeper than death. And the office of the marginal person is to go beyond death, even in this life, to go beyond the dichotomy of life and death, and to be, therefore, a witness to life. This requires, of course, faith. But as soon as you say faith in terms of this marginal existence, you run into another problem. Faith means doubt. 
Faith is not the suppression of doubt, it's the overcoming of doubt. And you overcome doubt by going through it. The person of faith who has never experienced doubt is not a person of faith. Consequently, the monk or nun or marginal person is one who has had to struggle in the depths of their being with the presence of doubt and to go through what some religions call the great doubt, to break through beyond doubt into a servitude which is very, very deep because it is not one's own personal servitude. So we keep going despite the doubt, not to suppress it, but to see oneself through it. And if one does this along the way, there can be even more difficulty. And I'd like to read a question that somebody wrote. Dear Michelle, if indeed dukkha is inherent in every conditioned phenomenon, and in the fact of existence itself, then the practice in one sense seems to be developing the power, courage, and equanimity to face deeper and deeper levels of pain. Off and on for years, and lately much of the time, I have encountered an extraordinarily powerful mental pain that does not seem to come from personal experience, psychological conditions, or mind states. Rather, it seems to come from a deepening awareness of dukkha itself, from seeing how every condition, even the most pleasant, is unsatisfactory, insubstantial, hollow, seeing that samsara really doesn't work and can't be fixed, and feeling trapped in it. At times, this pain is incredibly intense, it seems at those times almost as if the totality of pain in the universe is being experienced in one moment by one small heart. The mind recoils from this intensity. Lately it has gotten more frayed and gun-shy, reluctant to feel this experience anymore and unable to generate the necessary acceptance to deal with the experience wisely. Any suggestions you can give about dealing with this phase of practice would be welcomed. In the last day or so I have worked to separate ideas about the experience of this pain from the actual experience itself. Ideation seems to make matters a lot worse. This tactic seems fruitful. If in your own experience of dealing with extreme mental pain you, can you have found other useful approaches, please share them if you will. P.S. <laughs> One other question. I've asked it of other teachers, but they've never answered. How many Buddhas does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> <laughs> 
little <laughs> comic release here. <laughs> I think I'll stay with the first part of the question. <laughs> mm. Sometimes the mind really screams from seeing so much dukkha. And I think it's important to remember that often we're not aware that we're having aversion to the dukkha. Um, This time of sitting with Upandita, for some reason, meals in the dining hall were a total hell realm for me. It just was so, felt like just, I just wanted to scream and leave the meal every, every day, every day at lunch. Um, and it took me a while to realize that it was just that I wasn't able to catch the aversion to seeing that much dukkha. And after a while I learned that I could focus on the unpleasantness or the aversion. And by start, starting to allow for the unpleasantness, that made space for accepting the aversion. And by doing that, that made space for accepting that much pain itself. Or I ate faster. <laughs> that was the other tactic. Um, <laughs> that doesn't seem to work as well. <laughs> but you get your meal down. <laughs> uh. And in thinking about this question, um, besides that ability to recognize that it's just so unpleasant and we're not usually aware that we're having aversion to the dukkha, um, I also thought that part of the question um, led to accepting one's limits and learning to work with them. And I thought about this time um, some years ago where I had been doing, I did about a six-month retreat here, a self-retreat. And about four months into the retreat, I had to have an operation. And I felt very open when I went into the hospital. And it's a long story, but um, they were putting these needles in shots of anesthesia, and they didn't work. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have any... Basically, the anesthesia didn't work, so I could feel every single thing that they did. Um, all the cutting. And I left this operation feeling incredibly defeated. And I couldn't, I didn't quite understand what had happened. Um, But I think that in looking back, I could see that I wanted to be perfect. And that I thought that I I should, (laughs) those shoulds, I should be able to be open to that amount of pain. And you know those stories of the Buddha kind of smiling as his arms and legs are being sawed off. (laughs) 
<laughs> it, <laughs> I just wasn't able to smile through this uh, operation, and I kept watching each little second of the clock go. Uh, and the operation took, it was supposed to be 15 minutes, and it took over an hour, and it was, it was, the pain was unimaginable. And I couldn't find any meaning in it. Not only did I think I should be able to be perfectly open to the pain and condemned myself for not being able to, um, I think that I began to see that one needs a certain amount of faith and confidence um, to open to that amount of pain, and that often we feel defeated when we can't find some meaning in it. So in regard to this question, not only do we need to learn how to accept the dukkha, but also there also has to be some kind of context to have the confidence to open to it. And so one learns to allow for one's limitation. I learned that it was okay to close up and to scream or whatever. And there's a quote from an, I don't think I'll say this right, Ojibwa, Indian. It's Song of the Thunder. Song of the Thunders. Sometimes I go about in pity for myself, and all the while a great wind is carrying me across the sky. And I think that when we can't find a context for the pain, it's important to remember this great wind that is always carrying us across the sky, and it's just that we don't see it. And that it's okay. You know, sometimes we need a rest. Sometimes the mind is screaming, and it's, obviously, it's obvious that consciousness is painful, um, and that we need to back off, and that it's not an avoidance, but it's actually resting so that one can strengthen oneself to be able to go a little deeper. And without that rest, if it's forced, or if we push too hard, we'll feel defeated. This spring I got a letter from a friend of mine who was in Burma for a long time, over six months. Um, And she was in a place similar to this note, question. She was seeing dukkha in a place where it was just so intense that she just felt like the mind was screaming all the time. And she got hepatitis. And she wrote me when she had hepatitis that she was so happy (laughs) that she contracted hepatitis (laughs) because she didn't have to practice anymore. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I couldn't believe anybody could be that happy to catch hepatitis. <laughs> but there is, that, there is that need to back off sometimes. <laughs> and sometimes... <laughs> it's not that this appearance of dukkha is personal, and it's important to remember that um, I've seen more and more how there are times when we see in that way through the lens of dukkha and other times we'll be seeing more impermanence we'll be seeing through the lens of anicca or other times we'll be seeing more through the lens of anatta not taking things personally and I think often that when we can open and allow for the pain, it shifts into anatta, it shifts into that different lens. Because we accept it and we see that it's not ours. And then we shift into a space where we're just not identifying with it. And usually that abrasive quality to it, that um, the extreme unpleasantness of it usually drops away for a while. <laughs> but then there's usually another layer of seeing it that arises and we usually fight it again. And then we finally accept it. So it kind of goes through cycles. <coughs> and you might see that in one sitting that you go through that cycle and sometimes in a day or over weeks that there'll be this kind of shift of the, of the lens that you're seeing through. Um, I wanted to read another quote. This is by a man named Peter Matheson, and it's from a recent book called Nine-Headed Dragon River. It's some journals. He calls it Zen journals from 1969 to 1982. And one, he talks about Mu, Mu, M-U practice, which he defines as um, seeing or realizing what the state of oneness is. It's a koan that he's been given. Late in Sashin, which is a a period of practice in Zen, after six long days of pain, hurling myself to no avail against iron cliffs, I began to wonder why I had come why I had persisted year after year in this frustrating practice. A spider hanging from the zendo ceiling, spinning its moo out of its belly, was my echo. I gave up struggling and settled calmly into moment-by-moment quiet, moo spinning, breath after breath, Soon I was light and taut, at one with my pain in the same way that I was one with breathing, incense, 
far crows and the autumn wind. Ka, ka was not different from Peter, Peter. Small silver breaths, farther and farther apart, scoured the last tatters of thought and emotion from the inside of my skull, now a silent bell. And very suddenly, on an inhaled breath, this earthbound body-mind, in a great hush, began to swell and fragment and dissolve in light, expanding outward into a fresh universe in the very process of creation. At the bell ending the period, I fell back into my body. Yet those clear moments had been an experience that everything was right here now, contained in me. I mourned the bell that had come so swiftly and tried to cheer myself during walking meditation. Who, me? I murmured right out loud and began to laugh. The laughter quickly turned to weeping, and with the tears came a spontaneous rush of love for friends, family, and children, and for all beings striving in the room, and for everyone and everything without distinction. This feeling was followed instantly by a rush of doubt. Had I really perceived something? All this damned, soggy weeping. Had my mind gone too soft? Was I still too greedy for attainment? And then again the doubt came sweeping back. Perhaps I wanted such experiences too badly. Perhaps I was exaggerating everything. I was filled with gratitude and also felt frustrated, aborted. Seven years had passed since that first opening in 1971, which I now dismissed as premature and shallow. And this one, valid or otherwise, had scarcely started before being cut off by that bell, which had it come even a few minutes later, might have wrung those cliffs of iron down around my neck. I really appreciate his honesty. After six years of struggle, he had a few moments just a few moments, hurling myself to no avail against iron cliffs. And often, after years of struggle, we get a glimpse. We get a glimpse into that being here nowness. And it's these glimpses which usually motivate us to continue 
while being hurled against iron cliffs. And they're really important. There's a quote I like a lot. It's short. Once you've seen the peach blossoms, there is nothing more to doubt. And in this particular journal that Peter Matheson writes after the session, he goes to different teachers um, wondering why there's still so much doubt. And one of the teachers finally answers that he's on his way and that when there's a true, the truest seeing, when there's a deep, the deepest opening, that it will wipe away the last traces of doubt and that he's gotten a lot of openings along the way, but there's still traces of doubt and that that's okay. Often I think that um, we get these little crumbs. You get, we never get the cake. <laughs> Most of us just get the crumbs. And so one time I wanted to put a frame up on my wall with just these little crumbs in it. Um, but the crumbs are important. And they do help us to find the energy to keep going with the glimpses and to keep motivated to see clearly even though a lot of times we don't see clearly. There's one more thing I wanted to say about that. and um, Someone put a, a little baby snapping turtle outside my door the other day. <laughs> and this one's a really long story. It has endless ramifications. It's lost in my room somewhere at the moment. Um, <laughs> but I'm afraid it's going to be really big someday. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, I should tell you what happened. I um, built this terrarium for it. It was Thanksgiving, I think, that I got it. But I'm, you know, usually so busy. And finally, late one night, I built a little terrarium for the snapping turtle with lots of dirt and sand. And it immediately, it was it was in this little bowl, kind of freaked out all day. And it immediately just like dug itself in, and it was all buried. And what I was going to tell the story about was I was so impressed with its just natural instinct to hibernate that it, it really knew what to do. I didn't have to say <laughs> anything. <laughs> and I think that um, most of us have lost that or never had that kind of trust in our rhythm, 
and that we don't listen to our body, which has a lot of wisdom. And again, we're motivated so much by approval or fear of failure that we've lost touch with that that is there in all of us. Um, and we don't respect it enough. But the, the very funny part of the story is that I decided that I should take it to a sanctuary nearby. I don't really quite know what's, what's happened to this turtle, but... Um, I very carefully packed it in the car with a friend. She carried it on her lap the whole way. And then we, ca- we carried this thing a mile and a half into the woods. And it was heavy. <laughs> and we went through trees and branches and we brought it to this pond. And nearby the pond we dug this little place for it. And I very carefully was digging it out. And this other person kept saying, sure, it's there, you just, just be patient, it's in there. And I was digging and digging. And it took about 15 minutes, but there was no turtle. <laughs> it's one of the funniest experiences I've ever had in my life. <laughs> All that care and effort. <laughs> and it wasn't in there. <laughs> I really can't figure out. If you see a snapping turtle (laughs) in this building, (laughs) Sharon's terrified that it's in her room. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And my room, as some of you know, is such a mess that it's going to take quite a while to find it if it's in my my room. So anyway, um, (laughs) let's sit for a few minutes. (laughs)